Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It is sure great to be back on the air with all of you. The last time I was on the air, which was uh, at the very, very beginning of this month, around July the 1st, to me that seems like an eternity. But, as I recall telling you all between the dates of June 30th and July 1st, that I was going to be on assignment, and I was. And I'm sure many of you all had wondered during this time when my assignment would come to an end. Was this a mandatory assignment that I was on? Actually, it wasn't anything mandatory, but I figured, hey, it would be better for me to tell you all that I was on assignment so this way you all would know that um, I had not forgotten about you all, but I had something else that um, came up that uh, had been in the works for a little over a year. So would it be fair to say that I had gone on vacation? Yes. Do any of you all want to take a guess where I went on vacation? I can give you all a hint. It was somewhere of um, historical significance. I'll give you three choices. Was I in uh, New York City? Was I in Philadelphia? Or was I in Boston? The answer is choice B, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. My wife and I uh, were in Philadelphia from Saturday, July the 3rd, and we arrived back um, to our home yesterday afternoon. So what do you know? We got to be there for a whole week, which also included celebrating our July 4th um, our July 4th holiday. For those of you living in the United States, obviously this that would have meant that America would have celebrated its 245th anniversary, or birthday rather, I should say. You know, um, I will tell you all this. Um, when I'm on the air again next, I'm going to dedicate the next podcast episode of my trip to Philadelphia. However, I can point out a few things that my wife and I did. Well, for starters, we did a lot of things. And we certainly uh, went to Independence Hall. Now, I will tell you this right now. It's one thing to see Independence Hall from looking at it through a postcard, on television, or even through a, a textbook. But when you see the outside as well as the inside of Independence Hall in person, it takes on it takes on a meaning that allows you to realize just how significant not only the building itself is, but what sacrifices the people from inside made. I'm talking about the 56 men whom um, signed the Declaration of Independence, and as Benjamin Franklin, a prominent Philadelphian who lived most of his life in that great city, said, we shall all come together as one, or hang separately. I believe that's how it was said. But in other words, if we don't all come together as one to declare our separation from England, then we will have to answer to one another for why we did not declare our separation by hanging, as in, by hanging separately on an individual basis. And then 11 years later, in, on September, in September of 1787, when 39 men came together to sign the U.S. Constitution. So in that 11-year span from 1776 to 1787, 
history onto itself. I mean, I saw the assembly um, hall where both the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution were signed, my wife and I, rather, I should say. And we took a lot of pictures. But just to have seen for ourselves what those delegates debated on, how those delegates came together and made compromises, compromises that were hard ones, but yet compromises that were better to, that were for the better to ensure that we had documents to go by. Yes, the Declaration of Independence was a document that um, signified our separation from England, especially listing all the grievances for why we for why we knew that separation was the only way out when it came to that last resort, which which had to be the only choice considering that the Olive Branch petition uh, was not um, welcomed by King George III. And then when it came to signing the Constitution, our, our forefathers were signing their rights away. In other words, they were signing their rights away to something better, something better that would replace the fledgling system of government, a.k.a. the Articles of Confederation. But I should also point out that one other venue that uh, my wife and I were really in awe by was Constitution Center. But as I've said earlier, when I'm on the air again next, I'm going to tell you all more about this trip. And the reason I say that is, is because I owe you all, I owe it to you all, my listeners, not only where I went, but what I learned and how my wife and I interacted with, um, with uh, what do you call it, with docents from the museums that we visited and how we all had such a great appreciation for the history itself. As I've said before, and I could say it to you all again, freedom isn't free. And our forefathers knew that, and we should know that today, even in these turbulent times. So, we are back to uh, discussing signing their rights away, the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the Constitution, or rather the United States Constitution. I'm going to uh, start off with a couple of um, bonus questions for you guys. Our first bonus question is going to be the following. Given there were 56 men whom signed the Declaration of Independence 11 years earlier in 1776, how many of those 56 men were present 11 years later in Philadelphia whom helped oversee the new government get created? I'll give you a number. It's between 5 and 10. The answer is 6. Who are those 6 men? Roger Sherman of Connecticut, George Reed of Delaware, Benjamin Franklin, George Clymer, Robert Morris, and James Wilson, those four men all hailing from Pennsylvania. Our last bonus question for this uh, podcast episode is the following. After stepping down from Confederation Congress as president in 1786, what newly elected position did John Hancock serve in his home state of Massachusetts, beginning in April of 1787. Did he serve as House Speaker? Did he serve as the Attorney General or as Governor? The answer is choice C. John Hancock became Governor of Massachusetts. So, I think we should be reminded, folks, that while a handful of our forefathers who were still alive at this time who signed the Declaration of Independence, while they may not have been 
present in Philadelphia to take part in the Constitution process, they still were doing um, assignments or newly elected duties that were important, not just to their home state, but perhaps for their country. And, and of course, many of them might not have known at the time what those new positions that they were serving in would lead down the road. After all, Thomas Jefferson is ambassador to France. John Adams has just become ambassador to England. So the, um, the future is wide open for a lot of our other forefathers who are assuming different positions. So, you know, we've talked about New Hampshire. We've talked about Massachusetts. What's going to be the third state that we're going to discuss? The answer is Connecticut. How many delegates were sent to Philadelphia from Connecticut? The answer is two. Now, I know lately we've been uh, focused on the number two, it seems like, because only two delegates from New Hampshire came, two from Massachusetts. Will we ever get to the point where it will be more than two delegates from a state coming to Philadelphia? Will we be able to discuss something like that? I believe it's possible, but hey, sometimes you got to start off small before getting to the big numbers. Okay, well, our first delegate from uh, Connecticut is going to be the following. Many of you all don't know about him, and I didn't know anything about this man until I first read the book. His name is William Samuel Johnson. That's a very unique name. Let me ask you this. Do you think William Samuel Johnson was born in the 1720s? Or was he born in the 1730s or 1750s? Turns out William Samuel Johnson was born on October the 7th, 1727 in Stratford, Connecticut. Stratford is an interesting uh, name for a city, and I will tell you all that here shortly. But what I find interesting here is that William Samuel Johnson, given that he's born in 1727, he's five years younger than... Um, prominent uh, Revolutionary War statesman Samuel Adams, who had been born in 1722. He is five years older than George Washington, who becomes the father of our country. Washington was born in 1732. Now, as for Stratford, Connecticut, where William Johnson was born, it had originally been settled by the Puritans in 1639. Stratford, Connecticut was named after the following village in England. Many of you all would probably know of this village because it produced a famous English playwright whose works are still revered to this day. Stratford-upon-Avon is a market town northwest of London, which was home to famous English playwright author William Shakespeare. Stratford the town of Stratford is located along the Avon River. So that's how you get that name, folks. I know Stratford-upon-Avon sounds odd, but Stratford-upon-Avon, upon meaning that it's located, another phrase for being located along, along the Avon River. So uh, that's where we get... Um, Stratford, uh, Connecticut, folks, in honor or in, re in remembrance of Stratford-upon-Avon. As a matter of fact, there is a, a famous home um, in the northern neck of Virginia, not far from where I live, and I've uh, been there before. 
It's called Stratford Hall. It's home to the uh, Lee family, which is a uh, prominent uh, Virginia family who just so happens to be, the family happens to be related to George Washington through, um, through his marriage uh, to Martha Dandridge Custis. Of course, the Lees and the Custises wouldn't be uh, related until uh, Martha um, Washington's uh, great-granddaughter was the one who uh, married Robert E. Lee. So that's how the uh, Lees and the Custises became related. But nonetheless, there is a home in, in the Northern Neck, a historic home called Stratford Hall, and that probably more than likely had some connection to Stratford-upon-Avon in England. But anyways, uh, William Johnson's father, I found this to be interesting as well. Um, his name was Samuel Johnson. He was a well-known prominent Anglican clergyman whom later went on to become president of King's College. King's College doesn't uh, go by th that name anymore. It goes now by Columbia University in New York City, a.k.a. an Ivy League school, folks. So... Um, did William follow in his father's footsteps by becoming a minister? The answer is no. William instead went about pursuing law. He graduated from Yale College in 1744. While most lawyers struggled to earn a living, which they did, William proved opposite by becoming very successful in the law profession. So let's keep in mind that, yes, being a lawyer, while it was a noble and prestigious position, in the community and being a lawyer still is a prestigious position in today's modern times but we have to keep in mind that lawyers didn't always make big bucks and if there were lawyers who did make what we think of as big bucks in today's time they back in the 18th century day they were considered to be in the elite minority I found it interesting also, too, that uh, with William um, Johnson's father being a prominent Anglican clergyman, I have to remind myself that while, yes, living while I reside in Virginia, and I have to be reminded of the fact that while, yes, for many years in Virginia in the colonial era, ever since uh, Jamestown had been established, the state of Virginia adhered strictly to the Church of England or a.k.a. the Anglican Church. It is fair to say that many of our other colonies adhere to the Anglican Church as well, most notably South Carolina, Charleston, Charleston um, along uh, the Low Country. They had a very uh, strong Anglican hold. Even Boston had a strong Anglican population. So we just have to be reminded that other cities, in, in well-known cities and um states like say Massachusetts and South Carolina for example had a strong Anglican um, presence just like Virginia however Virginia was unique in that the Anglican Church was its official church of course we still got a we still I, I would say this by 1787 just just right before 1787 and 1786 Thomas Jefferson's dream for religious freedom be, uh, goes into play. The Virginia Statutes of Religious Freedom, which pretty much say that the church cannot interfere in the uh, governmental affairs of the state. In other words, the church cannot tell the government how to go about governing the people. 
On the other hand, the government can't be telling the church how to go about um, preaching sermons to the congregation. In other words, the, ch the government can't tell the church how to go about um, instructing Bible lessons upon the congregation. So in other words, the church cannot be interfering with the government's affairs and the government should not be interfering with the church's affairs, AKA separation of church and state. Matter of fact, folks, uh, there are three things real quick, not to get off track, but just as a reminder, there are three things that Thomas Jefferson is remembered for and they are listed on his tombstone at Monticello. The author of the Declaration of Independence, the founding father of the Virginia Statutes of Religious Freedoms, and the founding father of the University of Virginia. Remember those three things, folks. Now, given how successful William Johnson was at his craft, a.k.a. lawyer, did the connections he established as a lawyer go beyond his home state? Yes. How can I uh, provide you all with an example behind um, the connections that went beyond his home state? How about um, marrying a wealthy young woman named Anne Beach? This helped his status even further, or rather I should say it helped enhance his status. So you can have connections but when you marry someone who is wealthy, the connections that um, William Johnson's wife has will allow William himself to establish new clients who have uh, prominent statuses within their community. Never hurts to have connections, does it? Even in the 18th century, it sure as heck, sure as heck didn't ha hurt to have connections. But we have to keep in mind that a lot of our forefathers, like George Washington marrying Martha Custis, it wasn't so much that he married Martha Custis, he married the wealthiest woman in Virginia. And I learned something while in Philadelphia, folks. I have told you all probably before that Martha was a very wealthy landowner as a result of inheriting the land that was uh, given to her upon her first husband's death, being Daniel Park Custis. I learned that Martha Custis owned roughly 19,000 acres of land. Anybody who has that kind of acreage, that definitely signifies their status in society. But what I can tell you this, and I will need to find out more about this when I go to Williamsburg next, I think it's fair to say that for Martha Custis, 19,000 thousand acres of land were probably not confined to one area or tract of property. I do know that the Custises of Virginia did own property along Virginia's eastern shore um, as well as Virginia's northern neck and they probably may have owned land in what we now know as the Shenandoah Valley but there again I'm going to have to check on that and hopefully somewhere down the road I'll let you all know. So it'll be my way of letting you all know that I haven't missed out on anything. What year did William Johnson get involved politically on the national scale? Okay. You know, the local scale would be like your town. Um, the regional level could be like your state. 
But on the national level, folks, that means like, you know, nationwide. Well, let me ask, so the answer to the following is this. We want to know what year did William Johnson get involved politically on the national scale? Was it in the year 1770? Was it in the year 1765? Or was it in the year 1763? The answer is 1765. What's unique about 1765? I'm sure most of you all know this answer because it has been discussed in other podcast episodes per other topics on, um, or rather subjects pertaining to um, in the years before the American Revolutionary War takes effect. But in the years before it takes effect, these are not rosy times. How about 1765, which is the same year that Parliament passed the infamous Stamp Act? What do we know about that Stamp Act, folks? That uh, piece of legislation required stamped paper, a.k.a. legal documents like calendars to newspapers, just to name a few of the, of the many paper legal documents, to be, um, to be stamped, and not just stamped, but to have a tax on it as well. But remember, folks, what was so unfortunate about the Stamp Act? There was no proper consent to be taxed. In other words, we never got notified ahead of time. We, we never got the chance to debate it at home, and we never sent anyone overseas to vote on our behalf to say, hey, the colonists in the 13 colonies are all in unanimous agreement that, you, that they want you all, their, their uh, rulers above, to tax them. No, that didn't happen. That's where we get taxation without representation, that phrase, folks. No proper consent, no proper channels of hierarchy to ensure that communication was a, was a success on both ends. It wasn't. Well, the act went into effect in November of 1765, and we'll find out here shortly if it even lasted on the books for a year. So... William Johnson, I think it's fair to say that, okay, if he's gotten involved on the national scale in 1765, is it fair to say that he spoke out against the Stamp Act? Yes. He even went about attending the Stamp Act Congress meeting that was held in New York from October 7th to October 25th of 1765. The meeting was the first gathering of elected officials from some of England's 13 colonies whom voiced their opposition to new British taxation practices. Okay, this is a huge step for mankind right here in, in uh, colonial America. We're now coming together. This, this Stamp Act Congress might be a precursor to what we now know is like the first version of the Committees of Correspondence. The um, Congress meeting led delegates in attendance pardon me, to issue a Declaration of Rights and Grievances which stated, or rather held Parliament in direct violation of imposing taxes. As I said, said it earlier, and I could say it again here, as there wasn't any representation from the colonies in England who could speak on behalf of their constituents 3,000 miles away. So the colonies, or rather the colonists, know that they are being threatened 3,000 miles away overseas 
by a tyrant in King George III, as well as an institution in Parliament, whom have decided to take it up on their own behalf to tax their subjects below, but by doing so without their consent. In other words, I think it's fair to say that many in colonial America feel as though they're being treated like dirt. Well, can I blame them? No. But here's where things get tricky, folks, for William Samuel Johnson. Despite fierce opposition to the Stamp as well as the Townshend Acts, and just real quick, folks, the Stamp Act got repealed in March of 1766. So if it went into effect on November 1st of 1765, that means that that legislation only lasted four months. Parliament was kind enough to repeal it. But what did they decide to do in 1766 that would go into effect at the start of 1767? They passed the Townshend Acts, named for Charles Townshend, and what did that the Townshend Acts do? Well, they placed duties on, or what we call taxes, on lead, paper, paint, glass, and the tea, the infamous tea, folks. Just to name a few um, articles, or not articles, but a few tangible items that they knew that they could stick it to us to get money from. Well, where does William Johnson stand before and after the war had broken out with England? Well, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be fair to say that he would have, um, okay, if you're already in opposition to the Stamp Act as well as the Townshend Act, wouldn't you think he'd want to stay on the side of the Patriots? I think so, but it turns out he didn't, folks. He remained neutral. He had too many friends on both sides of the conflict. You know, it's one thing to remain neutral, but who's to say that you might stay neutral the entire way? I don't think there's a, a strong likelihood that if you are neutral today that you might remain neutral three months from now. Despite remaining neutral, William Johnson tried working out peace agreements with British General with a British general uh, by the name of General Thomas after Lexington and Concord had uh, broken out in Massachusetts, a.k.a. the shots heard round the world. Oh, and something else interesting, too. I was always led to believe that the phrase, the shots heard round the world, just simply referred to the fact that, um, that we weren't afraid to back down from the British, and by doing so, we fired a shot at them. That might, that, to me, that was a half-truth. What it really means is that at Concord, at the very, very start, at the very start, that British soldiers were hit and fell to the ground. Because, some, because British soldiers started getting hit and were falling to the ground, those were the real shots that were heard around the world. In other words, we had already proven that we could stand head to toe with them just by not by not walking away or running away, but by firing at them. For those of you who were with me when, um, when I discussed Paul Revere's ride by David Hackett Fisher, one of our officers at Concord said, for God's sake, fire, meaning it's time to go now. Now is your chance to fire at them. Fire those shots. See to it that they are heard around the world that we are firing against the mightiest empire, letting them know that we're not afraid to back down, letting them know that, okay, we may not have 
we may not have commissions. In other words, we may not have paid for a commission, but we do know how to fight. We may be a bunch of ragtag men, but we still have it in us to go head to toe. So, as for William Johnson, yes, he tried working out a peace agreement with a British general uh, by the name of General Thomas after Lexington and Concord, but he got arrested for communicating with the enemy, which included being barred from practicing law. Does that mean he got barred from practicing law for the rest of his life? No. However, when the war ended, he was welcomed back to the community which included resuming the right to practice law. So he had paid his dues, folks. And, you know, by state, even though he was imprisoned, he uh, did not violate um, any other, um, what do you call it, measures, or he, he, he uh, basically learned his lesson while in prison, let's put it that way. I don't know if he was in prison for the entire eight years of the war, but the bottom line is whatever time he was jailed and got out, he, um, he, learned, he learned a good lesson. Now, in 1787 at the Constitutional Convention, what did William Johnson advocate? Did he advocate for a strong or a weak central government? He supported a strong government that would protect the rights of small states and even Connecticut's a small state too, folks. So are other small states like New Jersey and Delaware. So William Johnson um, supported a strong government that would protect the rights of small states just like the larger ones. He supported the New Jersey plan, which was equal representation of all states in Congress regardless of the state's size. It turns out that he served and chaired on a five-member committee this committee was known as the Committee of Style, which framed the Constitution's final form, or let alone its final version. That, to me, is an elite committee right there. I, would, I think it's fair to say that his, um, his, his uh, overall um, experience and his overall uh, practices of being in the law profession were very um, essential in having served on the um, Committee of Style that Frame at which oversaw the framing of the uh, constitutional of the Constitution's final uh, form version. What's important about January 9th of 1788? Connecticut became the fifth state to ratify the U.S. Constitution. William Johnson would go on to serve as Connecticut's. He would go on to serve um, as the first of Connecticut's uh, two senators. Remember, folks, you know, each state would get two senators, regardless of size. So William Johnson is the first of Connecticut's two senators. <coughs> and it turns out, folks, that in 1789, you know, George Washington becomes sworn in as our nation's first uh, president. At the age of 61, William Johnson is the oldest man in Congress. George Washington is 57 when he becomes president, but William Johnson is 61. Now, we have to remember even 61, if someone lived to be 61 in 1789, that's considered old age. He would also, like his father, who became president of King's College that later became Columbia University, William Johnson became the school's third president. He died on November 14th at 
1819 at the age of 92, it is fair to say that William Johnson was, in fact, the oldest of all the United States Constitution signers. He lived a very prominent life, folks. He may not have had the same life that some of our other forefathers had, and yes, he may have been neutral during the American Revolutionary War, but he certainly did redeem himself by serving his country when it mattered most, by coming together within that large band of brothers, being 39 men who, signed, who would go on to sign the Constitution. So we, have, uh, we owe uh, William Samuel Johnson a huge um, gratitude of debt for his service. All right, who's our next uh, signer, folks? The second uh, man from Connecticut. I'll give you a hint. Didn't we say earlier that he was one of six men whom had signed the Declaration of Independence that also went about signing the Constitution? Yes. How about Roger Sherman? Is Roger Sherman older or younger than William Samuel Johnson? He's older. He was born on April the 30th, 1721. But let me ask you this, was Roger Sherman born in Connecticut, or was he born in Massachusetts or Rhode Island? The answer is Massachusetts, folks. He was born in Newton, Massachusetts. He was the son of a working farmer and cobbler. Do any of you all know what a cobbler is? <laughs> of course, we all, when, when I think of cobbler, more often than not, I tend to think of... Uh, cobbler is the dessert that you know that we eat we have ice cream on top like you know we're eating peach or blackberry cobbler well i i will tell you this folks um cobbler in that sense has nothing to do with what i described earlier about roger sherman given that he was the son of a working farmer and a cobbler so what does what would a cobbler have done in the 18th century did the cobbler repair shoes did he repair um, clothing, or did he repair, um, or was he someone that was considered to be a jack of all trades? The answer: He was a shoe repairman. A little humor, folks. Uh, for those of you who remember the TV show Married with Children from the late '80s into the 1990s, um, I'll just make it very brief. Roger Sherman is no Al Bundy. Al Bundy was a shoe salesman. Roger, Sher Roger Sherman was a shoe repairman. So in other words, if in the 18th century, if you, you know, we don't have shoe stores back then where we can just go and say, hey, I need, uh, my old shoes just gave out on me and uh, I need a new pair of shoes now. Well, of course, back then shoes didn't last forever, but, but if your shoes were still okay and they needed repairing, you took them to the cobbler. And that's what the cobbler did, folks. He repaired your shoes so that you would still get maybe at least another year out of them at best. So Roger Sherman uh, came from humble origins. He didn't have the highest level of formal education. So how can he make up for it? Well, he was a consistent book reader. In other words, he was an avid reader. Tragedy struck young for Roger Sherman in 1743. He was in his early 20s when his father died. Roger goes to New Milford, Connecticut, where he joins one of his brothers. And by doing so, Roger finds work 
as a surveyor in surveying property boundaries. Given Roger's father was a cobbler, did Roger Sherman himself learn the same trade? Yes, he did. Roger became a cobbler before his dad's passing. Well, so isn't it fair to say that maybe Roger... Could Roger Sherman himself, to some degree, become a jack-of-all-trades? In other words, do you think he's going to be um, talented in more than one uh, craft? Absolutely so. Did Roger Sherman marry more than once? Yes. He was married to his first wife, to his first wife Elizabeth Hartwell, from 1749 to 1760. Well, what happened to Elizabeth? Well, I can tell you all this much. Divorces were something that just didn't exist back in the 18th century. You learned to work out your differences even when times were tough. But sadly, Elizabeth died in 1760, and Roger was left a widower. Okay, a widower is a man whose uh, wife has passed away, a widow is a woman whose husband has passed away. So Roger is left with seven children. Can you imagine being in Roger Sherman's shoes in 1760? Your wife has died and now you have been left with seven children. Does Roger remain a widower for the rest of his life? No. He gets remarried in 1763 to Rebecca Prescott. And believe it or not, folks, their union added eight more children. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Yes, it, to us it may have seemed crazy to think that families in the 18th century, there were 12 children or more. But we've got to remember, folks, that life expectancy was not very high during that time. So if you had 12 children, your hopes or, or wishes were that at least six or seven would have made it to adulthood. And if any family who did have 12 children where, say, more than six made it to adulthood, that would have cons been considered beyond accomplishment. And once again, if a child made it past the age of 10, he or she was considered to have been an adult, in large part because many people in that day felt that when a child was at the age of 10 and made it past 10 years of age, that he or she had reached immunity, meaning that they had... Uh, acquired immunity from an assortment of diseases that were known to, to kill uh, not just children, but even grown-ups of the day. And what I mean by diseases like yellow fever, smallpox. As a matter of fact, when my wife and I were in Philadelphia, we learned in 1793 there was a terrible smallpox epidemic that wiped out 10% of the city's population, considering that the city had over 40,000 people. 10% might not seem like a big number, but 10% of the population being wiped out where, the, where it was just over 40,000, yeah, that's a big number. So anyways, uh, let's, let's um, focus a little bit more on Roger Sherman here. Because Roger Sherman was so well-read, he used his talents to go about helping a neighbor resolve a legal dispute. Okay? If he was, if he was that successful in helping a neighbor resolve a low resolve a legal dispute what what could transpire next folks a local lawyer learned of this and urged 
Roger to enter the law profession, which he did, and he did successfully go about passing the bar. Besides becoming a lawyer, what else did Roger Sherman do that was of noteworthy significance? Sherman himself served as a town selectman. He was justice of the peace, county judge to state senator. After his first wife's death in 1760, Roger and his seven children moved to New Haven, Connecticut. What college is located in New Haven, Connecticut, folks? It's an Ivy League school. It was founded in 1701. The first Ivy League school was founded in 1636 in Massachusetts. We all know that as Harvard. But the second one was founded in 1701. Yale, at the time it was Yale College. It's now Yale University. A, you know, there's a secret society there, a.k.a. the Skull and Bones Society, or what's called Skull and Bones. So, Roger and his seven children would go about moving to New Haven, Connecticut, where he opened a bookstore near Yale College. Pretty impressive, folks. Did Roger Sherman attend the First and Second Continental Congresses? Yes. He was well-liked by everyone, most notably John Adams to Thomas Jefferson, whom each saw Roger Sherman as an honest, hard-working man whom treated everyone present with respect. Roger Sherman served on the famous Committee of Five that included John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and Robert Livingston. Did Roger Sherman help contribute to drafting the Articles of Confederation? The answer is yes. But come the start of the Constitutional Convention, Sherman himself wasn't ready to make a complete separation from the Articles of Confederation. In other words, Sherman advocated that the Articles be modified. In other words, he wasn't looking for a drastic overhaul, or a complete overhaul, rather, I should say, but he was hoping that the Articles of Confederation could be modified to where the national legislature had the power to enforce the laws. In other words, he knew that the national government didn't have really any kind of leverage, and he was hoping that perhaps the national legislature would have more of a stronghold over over what the states were, had been allowed to do all this time leading up to those infamous rebellions, most notably in Massachusetts, a.k.a. Shays' Rebellion. However, as the convention went along, Sherman's views about the articles changed to where something better had to be established. What did Roger Sherman believe that the national government must address? Is it fair to say that Roger Sherman was big on defense, a.k.a. maintaining an army, as well as 
to maintaining a navy? Absolutely. You need to have an army to protect your people at home. And you need to have a navy that will protect your people along its waters as well as overseas. Because nothing was ever said in the Articles of Confederation about how to go about establishing an army, not just establishing it, but how to go about maintaining that as well as a navy in a time of war. How about conducting and entering into foreign treaties as well as domestic and foreign trade? Those were the things that really concerned Roger Sherman. And those were the matters right there that he believed that the national government needed to be, not only that the national government needed to address, but needed to have complete jurisdiction or AKA authority over. Where did Roger Sherman make history at the Constitutional Convention, folks? Haven't I mentioned before, and we've probably heard this before, weren't there two uh, plans? There was that famous New Jersey plan that was geared towards the small states who wanted, um, they wanted one vote regardless of size. They were very, the smaller states were fearful that the, that the larger states would have so much of a say to where the little guys would be left in the dust and not be allowed to um, contribute to anything. The Virginia plan, which was, um, which called for our three-tier, our modern-day three-tier system of government, was one that was based where population would would be based upon the state size in terms of how many representatives each state would get. So Roger Sherman, where he makes history, folks, it all revolved around the problem over representation. He solved the problem, folks, especially as there was so much great rift between large and small states on this matter. So how did he resolve it? Well, here's how he resolved it, folks. He, saw, he realized that the new government would need to be comprised of two houses, one where representation got based on population, a.k.a. the House of Representatives, folks, whereas the other house a.k.a. the upper body, the Senate, would get two senators per each state regardless of size. Okay? New Jersey, Virginia. New Jersey may not have the same size as Virginia, but New Jersey and Virginia will still get the same number of U.S. senators. Two, even number. Now, New Jersey may not have the same overall population like Virginia, considering that Virginia's population is much bigger in terms of its state size. West Virginia, as we know today, was Virginia. That means Virginia will have more representatives based on the overall population, given that its state is much bigger than New Jersey's. So is it fair to say, folks, that Roger Sherman's solution became known as the Great Compromise? Absolutely. And what did the Great Compromise do? It brought the small and the large states closer together. Now, it doesn't mean at the same time, however, that the large and the small states lived happily ever after. What it truly meant here, folks, was that Sherman's compromise was enabled for um, 
enabled everyone to come to, uh, to come to an agreement on something that had created so much rift to where if the matter did not get resolved, then who's to say that we might have walked away in the end with, with two houses of government? Because some people were advocating for just one house. But thank heavens, Roger Sherman was smart enough to realize that our government actually needs to be, our legislative branch needs to have two houses. So whenever you hear, whenever we learn about the House and the Senate today, folks, who do we have to thank? Roger Sherman. Without that great compromise, who's to say that our government would have two houses separate of one another, but yet still are linked to one another, but all but there again but that one factor folks population aka representation so you know roger sherman uh how old was roger sherman at the con during the constitutional convention he was 66 roger sherman lived um he lived for another um Four years after George Washington became president, he died on July 23, 1793, at the age of 72. 72 was old back then, but Roger Sherman truly was a sage for his time. And the fact that he, um, the fact that he contributed so much, once again, we owe him a huge gratitude of debt. Well, we've covered a lot of ground tonight, folks, and. Uh, as I said earlier, when I'm on the air again next, I will um, focus my next podcast session on my uh, trip to Philadelphia, from uh, on the trip that I just recently took to, to Philadelphia, and I will look forward to telling you all more about what my wife and I did. I can tell you this, I'd go back in a heartbeat. There is so much to do there, so much rich history, and a lot of great places to eat. And I know Philadelphia was known for its uh, cheesesteaks, and I can promise you this much, folks. I did have some cheesesteak sandwiches, and they were delicious. I also had a roasted pork sandwich as well, too. For those of you who aren't familiar with the roast pork sandwich, that's the one sandwich that always gives the cheesesteak a run for its money. Well, thank you again, as always, um, for listening. Uh, I want to thank you all for the support you've given me. And just so that you all know... Um, that uh, my wife and I, when we were in Philadelphia, uh, we met a lot of great people who love their city. We met a lot of great people who uh, worked at the museums that we visited. And uh, it was just great getting to meet those people. They really, um, they really do care about their city. So I look forward to being back on the air again with you all and sharing more about Philadelphia. But take care for now and uh, stay safe.